what we're going to talk about today is how God likes to use the foolish things of the world for his glory. And our section is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Foolishness. Awesome. So let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you just uh, for who you are and uh, just the desires you have to, to use us, Lord, exactly where we are. And um, all we need to offer you is just a heart surrendered to you, Lord, and just to be willing to be used by you. And um, I pray that through this foolish message, Lord, that you'd be glorified, that your strength and your power and your might would just be exalted and your name would just be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to go ahead and read the text and then we'll kind of break it down. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. The Bible says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord." So we notice this repetition, this theme um, of the Lord using foolish things throughout the Bible to proclaim his, his, wor- his word. So Paul speaks to us here from the book of Corinthians to the, the church in Corinth to remind us of our foolishness. For the most part, God doesn't call many who are wise, as it says. He doesn't call many who are mighty. He doesn't call many who are noble. And in reference to these attributes... He's not really saying wise as pertaining to the things of God. He's saying not many that are wise in their own eyes, not many that are mighty in their own eyes, not many that are noble in their own eyes, as opposed to, you know, what we think we have to offer the world from our own perspective. The fact that we think we have wisdom on our own. The fact that we think we we have might on our own and we think we're noble on our own. So first of all, he says, not many wise are called. So if someone is proclaiming to be wise, if someone is self-proclaiming to have wisdom in their own strength, chances are they're probably really not that wise. The chances are they're probably pretty ignorant um, because they're deceived and they're confused and they think that they have all the answers. They are 100% right 110% of the time and no one can tell them they're wrong and they just have to be right. They think that because they're so smart, because they have this, that, whatever background that they think they're basically God's gift to the world, right? And this used to be me growing up. I, you know, I kind of developed this, just a pride through playing sports and football and and track and weightlifting, and I was pretty good. So I began to think, wow, I know a lot about this stuff. I'm pretty wise. And then that started to transfer over to my teaching. When I first got opportunities to teach, I was like, man, I'm so profound in my teaching of God's word. This is like new age stuff. Look at all this stuff I have to offer. I'm so good. And people are like, oh, Joshua, you're such a good teacher. I'm like, yeah, I am a pretty good teacher, huh? Like, yeah, you know it. Yeah, that's good, right? And you like that stuff, huh? You're getting, you're getting built up. Okay, awesome. Um, 
But what I didn't notice is that pride of my own knowledge was kind of keeping me from where the Lord wanted to take me. Because my own self-image of myself and my intellect and what I had to offer was hindering what the Lord was trying to do. <clears throat> so he sees in 1 Corinthians 8.1, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. Right? So the more knowledge you have, it can also be a detriment to you because the more knowledge you have, the more you think you know more than everybody else. And now that I have walked with the Lord for about five years and he's had time to mold me, I really see this playing a part in to where he shifted me from having this immense confidence in my own abilities to now I really don't have much at all. I really don't think too highly of myself. You know, I see some of these pastors in, in our church, like, you know, Pastor Brian and some different pastors I know, I listen to. Um, they have all this awesome knowledge and Pastor Johnny and here's a verse for you on this topic and here's a verse for you on this and tell you about this guy. And I'm all, I don't even know. I never read about this guy in the Bible before. I don't know that. I don't have the knowledge. So now it's almost, I don't feel equipped to teach the word of God at times because I know I'm not that wise. But that is also a lie. Because God gives us everything we need when we need it. So there's a lot of really, really smart people out there who think they're wise because of their IQs. We have Richard Dawkins, for instance, this guy who is all about evolution, writes all these books trying to prove evolution and disprove God. And he's a smart man. He has a high IQ. But for such a smart guy, he misses the fact that creation and God's planet shows that he is in fact real. I don't know how someone so smart can believe that we came from nothing and evolved into something so complex as we are when this little pulpit couldn't even exist outside someone building it. He seems to believe that we can exist outside of someone building us. It doesn't make any sense. But again, his own intellect is, help, is preventing him from seeing the truth of the things of God. And that can hurt him. That can keep him from the call that God has on his life because he does have a call in his life. So that pride from that self-proclaimed wisdom is keeping him from that. One of my favorite pastors besides Johnny is James Cadius from Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill. You guys may have heard me say that before. Um, he's kind of an exception. He is super, super, super smart, like wicked smart. I don't know if you guys know what Mensa is, but it's a group where he's in the top 3% IQ of the world. And he's a pastor, and he believes in Jesus. And you talk to this guy, you listen to him, he talks about archaeological evidence for the Bible and all this crazy stuff. And I'm just like, like, I'm catching some of it, I'm missing most of it. But to me, it's awesome because I don't really think I'm that smart in a lot of, you know, areas. And it's, it's really encouraging to me to see someone so smart to believe in God. Because at times I doubt my faith too. I'm, just, I'm sure most of you do. You know, is it really real? Am I just being silly? So to see someone with that high of an IQ, with such faith in Jesus, it really encourages me. So there are far few in between people like that that God does call and they do respond to his calling where that intellect doesn't get in the way. But for most, it can, it can hinder them through that pride. Now, I'm not saying that God can't use someone like Richard Dawkins because he can, but I'm saying that it makes it a lot more difficult. So not many are mighty that are called. So again, some people in this world think they're so mighty. They think they're so strong. They think they're so tough. They think, you know, well, look at my life. Look what I've accomplished. 
I've pulled myself up from my own bootstraps and I've made my, my life, look at my job that I worked hard for and my family that I created and my, 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 it's all me. Look what I've done. They don't realize that every good and perfect gift comes from God, the Father of lights above. They don't realize that because they're so fixed on how mighty they are and how much they have overcome in their own, their own righteousness. The power of me, myself, and I has been woven into our minds, into our culture since before we were born. And I know this because growing up again in sports, I was really, really, really big into all the motivational quotes and all the self, you know, builder-upper things they give you on, on the, you can Google all these different verses, or not verses, but different motivational sayings and all these famous people, all these profound statements of how you are the best. So I have a few here. Um... Norman Vincent Peale says, Believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. Hooey. That's hooey. That's not true. That's all self-focused. And that's what our society wants us to do. It wants us to look inward instead of looking upward to the Lord. It wants us to look in at our own abilities, our own powers, our own capabilities, and keep us away from what the Lord has from us. Babe Ruth, awesome baseball player. I love Babe Ruth. He says, you just can't beat the person who never gives up. Yes, you can. People get beat all the time, daily. I'm sure all of you have been beaten at some point in your life. You've all fallen. You've all hit you know, a rock bottom in your own mind. You've all fallen short in some area of your life. You've all been beaten. So that's not true. But again, it's self-focus. And these aren't really bad. They're, they're kind of cool. Like, I kind of like them sometimes, you know, take them for what they are. But don't buy into it too much because it projects too much on yourself. Or this one, believe in yourself and you will be unstoppable. Again, no, we've all been stopped in our lives. We've all hit roadblocks. You know, oh yeah, I remember that. That was a tough one. Yeah, I don't know how I got out of that one. That situation was pretty rough. Like, there's been times where we have been stopped. We are not unstoppable. And God shows us that. And again, they're just subtle. You know, the way they're designed to, to distract you from what the Lord is trying to do in your life. The fact that Jesus, without him, we're broken. Without him, our lives are in shambles. And this is the, wor- the world's way to try to feed us our hunger for what we crave, which is the word of God. Because the Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I see this as a way as the world trying to fill that void, trying to fill that desire that we have for the word of God to build us up and to edify us. For instance, there's this guy at my, my gym and, you know, I've had a few conversations with him and he's a very hurting person. Um, a lot of anger towards the Lord, but, uh, from his head to his toes, he's covered in tattoos. His head shaved. Not that tattoos are bad, but his head shaved. And every one of them is like a motivational quote, or this symbol means this to me, or this means strength, or this means this. And I see he's just run out of room for his worldly motivation to try to uplift himself because the world cannot fill that void that God wants to fill. He's literally run out of space for motivation on his, on his body. But the only thing that's going to cure that is the word of God. He needs a whole another 
arm or leg or whatever because I'm sure there's more we can put on there. And again, I'm not saying tattoos are bad. I'm not saying little motivational quotes are bad, but you can't let it get carried away. You can't buy into those things too much. You can't put too much value into the motivational things of the world because they just don't last. So we're not mighty. It is God who is mighty. So let's look at the difference. Matthew nineteen twenty six. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So we see the world that says you're unstoppable, and we see God that says with you it's impossible. That's two very dynamic differences. It's polar opposites. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Again, completely opposite of what the world wants to tell you, that your strength, that your might, that your abilities is all you need to get you through your struggles. And let's compare them side by side. The word of God and what the world says. Jesus says, with man this is impossible. This life is impossible. And the world says, we're unstoppable. Just compare them. Has your life been impossible? Has it been impossible for you to fulfill what you've been doing? Have you fallen? Have you stumbled? Have you come up short in the world? Has it in fact been impossible so far? Or have you been unstoppable? Are you undefeated? Has the world just not been able to beat you? It's clear as day in all of our lives. The word of God is the truth. And here's the thing. If we in fact had all of the ability to do what the world says, to be unstoppable, to never be beaten, why is it when I Google motivational quotes, there's like 15,000 different quotes? It's because we continually need that because we're lacking the confidence in our own abilities. If we, in fact, were unstoppable and unbeatable, we wouldn't need to be motivated in that mindset because we would just be there all the time. You catch what I'm saying? We wouldn't need these motivational quotes. We wouldn't need to spray paint all these things all over our walls and you know, rehab centers and counseling centers. We wouldn't need that because we're unstoppable. But no, God's word says with man it's impossible. And I think that's where we need to, to really understand. And that's the difference. Today, the world, it's all about me, my strength, my power, my ability. And it's pride. But the Bible says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So the more pride we have built up, the more we think highly of ourselves, of how we're such a great individual with our abilities, the more we push God away. But the contrast is if we allow God to humble us under his mighty right hand, if we come to his throne of grace humbly and allow him to to bring us to the place where he wants us, that's when we really see him begin to work in our lives. So God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That prideful heart can keep us away from God and his plan of being used just as our intellect can. It was a main factor in Pharaoh's rejection of all of God's warnings, his pride. He hardened his heart towards the Lord. He hardened his heart towards the Lord. He resisted, he resisted, he resisted. And then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which means he set his heart in place. He affirmed what he wanted. So 
There's going to be a point where you harden your heart so much to where you're so prideful and you push God away that he's going to confirm that in your life. And that's a dangerous place to operate. Not many are noble that are called. Being noble is divine as having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. That sounds pretty nice, right? I'm a pretty highly moral person. I have good ideals. But again, it's easy to get stuck in that mindset that we're good people. Right? And that's a lie that we're fed as well. You know, as I go out to do these open-air preachings like I did last weekend at the Strawberry Festival, I ask people, how do you get to heaven? So in the question, how do you get to heaven? And most people are going to say, you have to be a good person. Like, probably seven, eight times out of ten. You have to be a good person to get to heaven. That's a good answer. I mean, if I didn't know much about much, like that would probably be the answer I would give. If I didn't know the truth found in in Jesus, that's probably what I would say. I like to think I'm a good person, you know? But there we go. Like, what is good? What is the standard of good? <clears throat> Are you good because you're not as bad as the terrorists that bombed the Ariana Grande concert? Yeah, you might not be that bad. But you're still bad. You're still not a good person. You're still bad. You're still sinful. The Bible says we are born into sin, and the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? In reality, there is no one noble by God's standards. We all fall short of the glory of God. And this is the huge deception, that we are good people. I'll give you an example. Last weekend at the Strawberry Festival, I was teaching and, you know, talking to people. It was a lot of fun. Um, And we get this agnostic guy that comes up. And he's a cool, cool guy talking to him. He's taking it in. I say, okay, can I give you the good person test? Because he says he's a good person. Yeah, I'm a good person. Okay, question number one. We're going to go by the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? He goes, yes, I've lied. Okay, cool. So what do you call someone that's lied? Do you guys know what you call someone that lied? A liar. Okay, cool. So you, by your own self-admittance, are a liar. He goes, yep. Okay, awesome. Question number two. Have you ever stolen anything? He goes, yes. Okay, cool. So what do you call someone that steals, guys? A thief. So by your own admittance, you're a liar and you're a thief. Question three, have you ever murdered anybody? He goes, oh, no. He starts getting all, nah, not me, never murdered anybody. That's good. You can see the pride start to build up. Not that bad. Okay, okay. But did you know that Jesus said, if you harbor hate in your heart towards somebody, it's the same as murdering? He goes, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow, that's weird. Have you ever harbored hate towards someone in your heart? Nope. Oh, you've never hated anybody in your entire life? Nope. Okay. He's all, hmm. but you're still a lying thief. <laughs> so you still fail those two standards, right? And the Bible says that if you have broken one commandment, you're responsible for all. So I didn't need to address that and prove that he did hate someone because I already had him on the other two. So you see, we all fall short of the glory of God, as it says. And if you break one commandment, you're responsible for all. Jesus himself said in his word, from his lips, it's in red letters, so you might want to highlight it, circle it, star it, whatever, put a little asterisk next to it. He said, there are none good but God. So that's it. Jesus said it. There's none good but God. 
We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. So naturally, if people don't see they're a sinner, if they don't see that they have flaws, that they feel their moral standards are good enough, in reality, they'll only be good enough to go to hell. If they think in their own righteousness, they can stand at the great white throne judgment. It's not going to happen. We all fall short of the glory of God because nothing unrighteous can enter heaven. So the notion of I'm a good person is a dangerous place to live because evil has no limits. So if you think you're above any sin, you're deceived. If you think that, oh, this person at church, you know, did their family wrong or this person got drunk and got in a fight and went to jail or this, and you think I could never do that, you're you're wrong because evil has no limits. You are 100% susceptible. And when you let your guard down, that's when the devil takes his step. And I'll give you an example that blew me away. I was reading yesterday on Facebook because everybody has Facebook. And once in a while, I get something good from there. Like on a Tuesday, the third week of the month or something. But So I was reading this article that in Florida, police arrested three men that were practicing cannibalism for five to ten years. So what had happened was the police were called to the residence for loud music. The same song was playing over and over and over again. So the police knock on the door. You know, no one answers multiple times. So they go in the door, which was open. And it smells bad. And there's all this junk everywhere. And they hear the music coming from the basement. So the police go into the basement and they find these three men sitting in a circle with human remains in the middle of them and they're eating these human remains. And in the fridge they find more human remains and they find bones scattered throughout the basement in cabinets and drawers and dressers because these men were meeting drifters and homeless people that come through town and they would take them and they would eat them because they believe that eating human remains cured their depression and their type 2 diabetes. So they thought it was a good thing for them to eat people because of these reasons. But you see, this is my point. Growing up as children, I guarantee you they never once thought that they would ever practice cannibalism, that they would ever be that bad, that they would ever come to the place where they would commit such a sin as that growing up. And that's where sin can take you if left unchecked. Because evil has no limit. And, I mean, it might be kind of an extreme example, but this is an extreme notion. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to spend, and you'll be there longer than you want to stay. So we have to rely on the Lord to check that and not allow our pride to take us that far. So we should never think we are noble. So we see being wise in our own eyes Being mighty in our own eyes, being noble by our own standards can lead to some big problems in our life, mainly pride. So what does the Bible say about this? In verses 27 through 28 here, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So God uses the things that are unwise by the world's standards to put to shame the wise. He uses the weak things that the world says this is a weak 
person or a weak situation, and he uses that to show his strength. So I'm going to give you some examples of God's foolishness in the Bible as he uses people. First, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Noah. Name my son Noah because Noah is like amazing to me in the Bible. Besides Jesus, he's probably one of my, my favorite, and Paul probably. But he's probably one of my favorite characters in the Bible. So Noah gets told from God, I'm going to flood the world. So you need to build a boat. Okay, so you have to understand, before this, the world had never seen rain. The heavens had never opened up, and rain had never come from the sky. The only water was from the underground springs. So Noah, by faith, starts building this boat in the middle of the land, warning people that the world's going to flood, and they'd never seen rain before. So the world would probably think that Noah's a foolish man. Bro, why are you building this boat in the middle of, of this field? There's no water here. Oh, what was a flood? It don't make any sense. How is water going to engulf the entire world? And the Bible says that Noah preached this message his entire life, and not one person believed him. It took him over 100 years to build the ark. So he's building the ark for over 100 years, preaching the message that God's going to flood the world, and not one person believed him. He's like the crazy guy living down the street. It's like, no, you don't want to talk to Noah. He's just jabbing about floods. He's building a boat in the desert, basically. Like, I don't really know what he's talking about. This guy is foolish. But God used that to show his power and his glory as he used that, that foolish situation. Had those people put down their pride and heeded the call of the Lord, they would have avoided that judgment. So by faith, he believed in God and God used that foolish situation. We see Abraham and Sarah, nine-year-old lady, having a baby. That's crazy. A nine-year-old woman has no business having a baby. And we saw Abraham try to override God's plan by having a baby through Hagar, Ishmael, and that didn't work out. So that's a foolish situation if someone says, I'm going to have a baby at 90 years old. The doctors are going to say, that's impossible. Well, you know, scientifically, this is impossible because, you know, whatever, the woman's body isn't working right and the eggs are all dried up or whatever. Like, it's not going to happen. But again, God uses that situation to show his glory and the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Because there's no other way that you could explain that besides God. And then you look at his sons, Ishmael and Isaac. So God was going to fulfill the promise through Isaac of these many nations, not through Ishmael. Ishmael goes out, has 12 sons. Isaac goes out and marries a woman who is barren. Lord, why would you not use Ishmael? He has 12 sons. It's a pretty easy situation to build some nations through 12 sons. Why are you going to choose Isaac? who married a woman who's barren, who can't have babies for 19 years. Why are you going to do that, Lord? Because that's the way the Lord works. Because he uses those impossible situations for his glory. David and Goliath. This is a great example. We see David, this little teenager kid, little shepherd boy with his little rock and sling because he likes to knock cans off the fence with his rock, you know, hanging out with his sheep. Then you got Goliath, this seasoned war veteran, with battle scars, he's like eight feet tall, 500 pounds, armor, all the weapons, and you see them go head to head, right? If we had that on ESPN, I'm put all my money on Goliath, sorry, because it's foolish to think that David's going to win this little boy in leather. 
because he couldn't even wear the armor. It was too heavy. He was going out there with his rock. Sorry, I'm putting all my money on Goliath. And we see that David conquers him. There's no reason that should happen. A young boy beating a war veteran in full armor, decked out with swords and axes and javelins, because that's how God works. He uses the foolish things of the world to show his glory because there's no other way he could work in that, that, would, that situation unless it was of God. John the Baptist called to proclaim Jesus, the Lamb of God. This dude who's wearing camel's hair and eating bugs out there preaching the word of God saying, here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, eating bugs, beetles and ants and worms and wearing camel's hair, being all crazy. Like, Lord, why wouldn't you use a Pharisee? Look how holy these Pharisees are in their temple with their purple robes and their little smoke ball things that they wave around and their little staffs. Like, why don't you use that guy? They're pretty holy. They know your word. No, God's going to use this little camel's hair wearing bug eating man. Because that's what God does. Because it's foolish. Because it makes no sense. Because there's no room for any other explanation except for God working there. We have Mary, the woman who found Jesus resurrected. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but in this culture, the woman's word had really no weight. People didn't really believe women. They didn't really have a place to speak in this culture. It was more about the men. So why would Jesus Christ reveal himself to a woman first to go proclaim that he has risen if she had no influence on the culture? Why wouldn't she reveal himself to a Pharisee in the temple, like, ooga booga booga, Pharisee, it's Jesus, I'm risen. Like, that'd be more credible. Why would you reveal yourself to a woman? Unless it was true. Because God wants the faith. Because she had no influence in the culture. And he uses the foolish things of the world. Then we have the very ministry of Jesus Christ. A man who hung out with tax collectors. A man who hung out with fishermen rejects, forgave adulteresses, healed lepers, put his hands on lepers, cast out demons, would preach on the side of the road in the desert in his sandals, sleep in caves. That's foolish for the king of king and the Lord of lords to lead that kind of life. Like, why wasn't he hanging out with the politicians, the people with influence? Because that's not how he works. He uses the foolish things of the world. So why does God do this? He tells us here in verse 29. He says that no flesh should glory in his presence. So Jesus leaves no room for anything else to be praised, for anything else to get the glory, except for him and him alone. That's why he uses those situations. That's why he uses the foolish things of the world. Because God is so passionate about his own glory that he wants the situation to point only to him for him to receive all the glory and all the praise. That there's no other possibility of how these things happen. So some human examples. You know, you look at some of these pastors and people of our time. C.S. Lewis, profound Christian writer, was so bent on disproving God that through his intense studies, found God to be true. That's foolish. A man that wants to disprove God finds God. That's the last person you'd think would be a Christian. One of you guys know Pastor Raul Reese. Heard of him? Yes, maybe some of you. 
This guy was in a hotel room with a loaded shotgun ready to murder his entire family and have a shootout with police. And then Pastor Chuck Smith comes on the TV, he hears the gospel, and he gives his life to the Lord. And now he's a pastor serving God. There is no room for any flesh to glory in that situation except for God. None. That is unexplainable. And if you want to believe it, you can believe it. If you don't, you don't have to. It doesn't matter because that's the way that God works. We have Miles McPherson, another favorite of my pastors down at the Rock Church in San Diego. He was an NFL player, cocaine user, drug user, found the Lord on an airplane. Someone preached the message of the gospel to him. He quit his drugs cold turkey. No withdrawals. That's a God thing. Again, you can believe it or not. It doesn't matter because it's true. And then one of my favorite Christian rappers, his name is Thistle, for those of you that like Christian rap. Uh, We met him at a pastor's conference, T-H-I-S-L, if you want to Google him. He got some sweet music. This kid grew up in the ghettos, lived in a crack house when he was eight years old, selling crack cocaine, had a rap sheet about this long, he says, basically went to jail for murder even though he didn't commit it, and they're not going to believe him because he has a rap sheet this long, gives his life to the Lord in his prison cell on his knees, and the guard says, you're free to go hours later. And he's walking out. He's like, you playing with me? To every, every police officer he passed, you playing with me? And he still doesn't know how he got let out of prison. And again, you can believe it or not, it doesn't matter because God knows. And he testifies of it. And he knows the Lord. And that's the truth. And then there, you know, for me, my foolishness. You know, I grew up, many of you may know, may not know, in various foster homes, tossed around, you know, cast out from different families. I suffered from severe depression for about 23 years of my life. Terrible. The last five years of my life, God has taken my depression away. I haven't had it. And it's amazing because that's a God thing. And I tell people that. People share with me they have depression. I say, I used to have depression too. I go, oh, yeah? How'd you overcome it? I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to tell you. Okay, buckle your seatbelt. You ready? They're like, yeah, well, dude, come on. You got to tell me, man, I'm depressed. I'm like, I'm serious. I'm going to give you the truth. I'm like, okay. I'm like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, no, come on. Josh, Jesus, come on. I'm like, sorry, that's it. They're like, did you take any medicine, antidepressant? Nope, never took any antidepressants. Did you have professional counseling? No. I had maybe like five sessions with a Christian counselor, but that was it. The only difference in my life from 23 years to the last five years was five years ago when I met the Lord on my knees. And ever since then, it's been a process, and he's taken that depression away, and he's taken that insecurity away. And I began to get a joy from the Lord and a peace that surpasses understanding as he's redeemed me. And again, you can believe it. I don't care because I know in my heart of hearts what he's done. And that's it. That's the truth. So God, Jesus, makes a habit of using the foolish things of the world. So when you finally come to a place of how foolish you are, with how unwise you are, with how unmighty you are, with how unnoble you are, how you're not a good person, and you're a sinner, and you finally are able to experience the fullness of his plan when you are humbled under his mighty right hand, when you come to his throne of grace, and you submit to his will, 
When we cooperate with God, he will blow you away with his wisdom, his character, and his might. And finally, verses 30 through 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So we've established this. We are not wise. We are not mighty. We are not noble. But the word of God here says that Christ Jesus became wisdom for us, that through his spirit he makes us wise. So some of you might think in your lives, oh man, I could never share because I don't know enough about the Bible to share with people and what if they make me a fool and they put me on blast? What do you know about Jesus Christ? I know that he died for my sins so that I could be forgiven. I know that he was crucified. I know that he rose on the third day. I know that he is Lord. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know anything else. Jesus Christ died, crucified, risen. He is God. That's all you need to know. You don't need to argue. You give them the truth. Just because they don't like it doesn't make it any less of the truth. So he gives us his wisdom. We'll have everything we need in those situations. He became righteousness and sanctification and redemption for us. He became that strength for us, that through him we can do all things, that we can conquer everything this world throws at us. But only through him can we experience that because we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. We are already victorious. We have already overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimonies. We need to share these things with people so they can see how foolish we are and how God has redeemed us and brought us to the place where we can give him the glory through his redemption. And that it is written, he who glories, let him glory only in the Lord. So again, the Lord works in our lives in a way that we are only able to glorify him, that we are not able to glorify ourselves because there's no room for the flesh in the presence of the Lord. There's no room for pride. There's only room for his majesty. Amen? Amen. All right, guys. Uh, We're going to do a time of communion now. So communion is very special. It's just an opportunity for us to just come back to the cross as we just finished talking about where Jesus gave his life for us so that we could experience these things, his wisdom, his righteousness, his might, his strength, where we could deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow him. And as I taught on Easter, you know, I think sometimes it becomes a repetition when we share with people, a repetition in our minds that, oh, Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins, and he died for us. He didn't just die. He suffered for our sins. He gave it all for our sins. He didn't just die. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was crucified, one of the worst ways that someone can die. Suffering, death from asphyxiation. Not that we could have eternity. It wasn't even a sure thing, but it was so we could have a chance to receive Eternity, So we could have a chance to receive the relationship with him. He says, I'm just going to put this right here. Do with it what you want, this free gift. I gave it all for, this, for you to have this gift. You don't even have to take it. 
And that's a humbling thing 